could be regular practice for this one. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 13. We're going to go uh, into 13. I'm actually going to start in Romans, so if you want to look in Romans, I'm going to go through just the first verses of chapter 12 to begin with. And if things starts bouncing around, then uh, um, I apologize. To begin with, um, Romans chapter 1. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. As all you know, we live in a world today that communicates a tremendous amount of information quicker and faster over further distances than probably any other time in history. And in that information sharing, there are the respected sources, which would be whatever news agency or organization that might put out that information. There are also the guys in their pajamas who blog all day and pontificate on all kinds of thoughts, whether it be religious or otherwise. But this information flow is just covering our world. And you can find out someone's thoughts in Germany with a click of a button um, instantly. And I spent, and I'm spending more time in the high school uh, as a teacher, and it's amazing to see how much of that information uh, permeates even that little subculture part of, of culture. And these kids speak these truths as if they're just these facts of life about all kinds of things. And the fact is that there is a truth, a worldview, in fact, many worldviews or views of things that is being communicated through all of this information that's being spread. And its purpose, or maybe just its effect, is that it shapes culture. It shapes how people behave because it often dictates what they believe. And if we don't, according to Romans, actively renew our minds with something godly, that being God's Word, we will, by default, conform into a different way of thinking, into what is a broken way of thinking. And it's no different than what happened in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 where Satan came and preached a different truth that contradicted the truth that God had already proclaimed in His Word. And instead of standing up like a man should have and speaking out against that and declaring what God's Word was, what the truth was, and thereby protecting both his bride and really all of the world, he sat there silent and just absorbed it. And they conformed to what the lies had, had taught them. And I don't see much different than the world today. I see a lot of people and, and interact with a lot of people who claim to be believers and those who don't claim anything, who, as Paul so aptly describes in Timothy, are tossed to and fro like children by waves, and they're carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and by deceitful schemes. And what I often see is people kind of take this smorgasbord of stuff. It's like this mutant truth 
with just these pieces of different things, like a large spiritual buffet. And part of it is not necessarily what the Bible says, but what they think the Bible says are the parts they like. And they take this piece over here. They take this part from their emotion that really goes completely unchecked and unrestrained from their intellect and from their experience. And they make out this truth, this life truth that will dictate their behavior because it's how they view the world. And it's very spiritual sounding, but it is, in fact, the gospel of the world that shapes people away, I believe, from God. And so the gospel of the world is out there, and there is a series of competing truths. And I'm going to give you kind of a snapshot of what I believe the gospel of the world, the thing that Paul warns us not to be conformed to, teaches. It teaches, to begin with, that there is really no one God. If there is a God at all, there's lots of them. But people are very spiritual. You see that on Oprah all the time. They say spirit like every other word. Spirit this, spirit that. We're spiritual. And they have this sense of spirituality that isn't rooted in anything necessarily solid. Man himself is really just an animal. And he popped out of some ooze somewhere, this impersonal ooze. And it's the same impersonal ooze that is responsible for very personal things such as justice in love and forgiveness, and that doesn't really have explanation, just that those things happen too. Then you have our purpose of existence, and it's really just to pursue happiness, as long as your happiness doesn't infringe on someone else's, but your happiness. There's no absolute truths, except really one, that there's no absolute truths, and right and wrong are dictated by what might bring pleasure and what doesn't bring pain. Those are the things to avoid. There's no such thing, therefore, as sin. Sin and brokenness are just really the results of negative thinking and are defeated by more positive thinking. And because there's no sin, there's no need for anyone to save you, but any faith in God that someone might have is just a tool. It's a tool really for the weak who need a crutch to get through the hard you know, parts of life. It's like a good luck charm to, you know, hope thing, like wish for good stuff or a, like, tooth fairy type of belief that, you know, might bring you some hope when things fall out, I guess. But all in all, God is something to be used when I need it or him or her, whatever happens to be. And we need not worry because there's really no God expecting anything from me. And there's no hell or eternal judgment. And those were made up by people in churches who wanted to get them in the door and scare them. And the same people who uh, just want your money and started all the wars uh, that the world has had since Roman times. That's who those people are. And anyone tells you your thoughts are bad or your decisions are or wrong, or anything like that, do so because they're uneducated, they're ignorant, they are in many ways insecure, or they're just flat-out mean people. Because everyone knows that loving people tolerate everything, loving people accept everyone, and approve of everything that those everyones do. And without question, any sort of loving discipline is like verbal spanking and We don't spank. The gospel of the world 
And as for the Bible, well, it's a good book, best-selling book. It's a great book. It's kind of outdated, and it's got some old stuff in it. It's got a bunch of uh, contradictions, although no one can seem to point any out. It's got a lot of holy people that are perfect, uh, so therefore, just like the places it talks about, they're probably mythical and aren't real. And no one reads it, of course, but everyone knows what it says. And Jesus, well, if he's real, I mean, he was a great teacher like Buddha or Muhammad or Gandhi or any number of really great leader who believes in the spirit of man. And he was a good example how to love people and hate church. And he was a, he was a radical, a political radical, kind of like the hippies. So make sure we give him flocked hair and a white robe and a blue sash and open-toed sandals. And he only says really nice things. It makes everyone feel loved. And he never talks about anything hellish or judgment-like. He approves of everyone, accepts everyone, every lifestyle, every belief. And he died on a cross very tragically, but as an example of something servant-like to do. That's the gospel of the world. And it is very much unbiblical. And if you and I don't renew our minds with the truth without question, we will fall into it. I see that happening all the time where people take parts and they kind of try to morph it together with the world and they create this foreign thing that has nothing to do with their identity as Scripture defines it. And the Jewish people, as as we've read in Exodus, God is so focused on making sure that their identity is secure as they live in this idolatrous world. So that what they do, the ceremonies they celebrate, remind them of their identity. And even if you look back, I think it's amazing to look at the Jewish education. The ancient Jewish, I'm not talking about contemporary education, but the education in the community was not like our education system. I'm a teacher, high school teacher. I think the mission statement is something in the effect of become a, uh, I can't even tell you, something like a good thinker, a critical thinker, and a successful citizen. The Jewish culture and their education were not focused on becoming a critical thinker, which is not a bad thing, but that wasn't the purpose of it, nor was it to be a good citizen. The purpose was it to protect their identity, to protect who they were, what their purpose was on this earth, and what they were supposed to do. That was the purpose of their education. And they were, in a very real sense, protecting themselves from all of the cultures of the world that they were going to be competing with or immersed in and attacked by. And you see, time and time again, the biggest mistake that they make is they go after the idols of culture. Over and over again, they commit adultery, they whore themselves out in God's Word with other idols when they have, in fact, one husband who is God. And so if you look at their education system very practically, it's amazing. At a very young age, they began their studies in um, really the temple, but eventually the, the synagogue, and they would teach or learn the Torah. They would be taught the Torah, which are the five... First five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, right? 
And it wasn't unusual for the 10-year-olds or those that get to 10 to memorize all five books. Some of us, a lot of us, most of us, maybe never even read the first five books of the Old Testament. They had it memorized. And then from ages 10 to 14, they would begin to learn and memorize the Psalms and the Proverbs and all the minor prophets and the major prophets, most of the, if not all, the Old Testament. And it wasn't unusual for the 1st, 2nd century B.C., a couple hundred years before Jesus, Jew, to memorize all the Old Testament and to know it by heart. Not for the purposes of then being like, hey, I'm going to be a good student. To protect their identity. And at age 14, a few of the more studious, would hap- what would happen is those would be separated to go with a rabbi. The others would go learn the uh, job of their dad. My dad's a fisherman. My dad's a carpenter. So the studious would come to a rabbi and they would become the disciple of this rabbi. And they would follow, literally follow this rabbi wherever he went, learning their interpretation their commentary on the Torah. And they would study the Talmud, which is just that, and the Mishnah, all these interpretations, and they would become, in a very real way, that rabbi, because they would take their positions on how the Sabbath is supposed to be practiced, so to speak, because there were some variations of what that looked like. And again, it was to protect their identity. They knew exactly what they were about and were dedicated to Scripture. And then we wonder, I think I wonder, or lots of people wonder, why our foundations are so easily shaken. Why we get so lost in our purposes, and who are we, and what are we supposed to do? When we grow up memorizing advertising campaigns and slogans and video game secrets and calorie counts and movie lines and coffee orders and phone numbers and football team rosters and internet passwords and web addresses and song lyrics. And we go, gosh, why am I so confused about what to do? When that's the bulk of what is going into our mind. And those things aren't sinful, but it makes a lot of sense when you begin to lose sight because of what you're being led by. It's really no wonder at all. So this passage in Exodus, I'm only going to talk about a couple verses in it, strangely, but I think it's the most important stuff in it, in Exodus 13. And it reminds us, or perhaps convicts us, at least convicts me, of what is supposed to renew our mind. What is supposed to be at the forefront of our foreheads and our actions. Exodus 13 starts, we've just left Egypt After the exodus, the first thing God did was institute the Passover, and now He's instituting something else for them to do to remind them of who they are. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep 
this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. And unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And you shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes in the law of the Lord, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt, and you shall therefore keep the statue at its appointed time from year to year. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. And every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks... What does this mean? You shall say to him, By strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. And therefore I will sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And it should be as a mark of your hand or frontlets between your eyes for a strong hand for the Lord for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So following, as I said, the reinstitution of the Passover, God institutes something else. And these are the kind of passages people go, this is exactly why I don't read the Bible. Because I read this and go, what does this have to do with me? I don't get it. All these ceremonies and weird stuff, sacrificing animals, I don't like it. Irrelevant, archaic, doesn't make sense. And outside the whole story of Exodus and the whole story of Scripture, I might agree with you. But it has a significant amount of meaning. If nothing less than what God is doing is asking these guys to consecrate for themselves on a regular basis the firstborn animals, male, and their sons to set them apart for the Lord. And what a reminder that had to be of what their lives were about. Their sons were set apart for service to the Lord, a service that probably had some sort of priestly duties to it that eventually were assumed by the Levite tribe. We see that later. But for now, they're set apart. Their sons are dedicated because the sons of Egypt were killed when their firstborns were saved. And they will sacrifice their animals and the unclean animals, of which they identify what those are in Leviticus, and some of them are hoofed animals like the donkey. We will redeem both the sons and these unclean animals we will save them by sacrificing lambs. They don't kill their children. They sacrifice a lamb in place as they dedicate that child to God. And if the donkey, if they don't get a lamb to sacrifice, they kill the donkey. What a memorial to remind them of their freedom that they received because they believed God's word back in Egypt. And every year they will do this as a ceremony to remind that they are a purchased people. They are owned by God. They are His. Therefore, they are protected by God. They are blessed by God. They are led by God and His Word. And then He reminds them, He says it twice in, I believe, verse, well, 6 or so and 11, that they are on a journey. They haven't finished yet. Their freedom wasn't anything but a beginning. They're going into the land. 
And they're going into a land. He lists all these Canaanite tribes that are idolatrous, pagan peoples, that are all battle-hardened peoples. And he says, I'm going to give you that land. And I imagine they're thinking, great. But this is the same God that just destroyed the most powerful military, army, nation, and is about to do so in the Red Sea. And so they don't see that, but we do. We know what God they're talking about. But to them, it's like, my gosh. And as they continue to believe what God says, He says, if you continue to memorialize what I have done, I will give you this land flowing with milk and honey. All these peoples do not love God. All these peoples have an identity that's rooted in the world, but this one people that God has said, you will do things according to my word. You'll be protected by my word. You'll be led by my word. Believe my word. And God also tells them to not only remember this for yourselves, but when your sons ask, teach it to them. Why? Because someday they will have their own firstborns. And they will have to set apart their firstborns in honor of God. Teach them what I have done, that they might be protected, because we are a people, as Israel was, who are easily, easily duped, and we easily forget who we are. Now, what I want to focus on, though, is what he says in Exodus verse 9, 13, 9, and 16. And I'll read it again. In memorializing and teaching these to their children, he says this, And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For the strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So in verse 9 and again in 16, he uses an interesting phrase. He says, this will be a memorial on your hands and between your eyes or on your forehead forever. And the purpose of memorializing this, he says that the law of the Lord will be in their mouths. And so in the first and second century, after the Babylonian captivity kind of released them to go back, you had a couple different groups that you see in the New Testament One is called the Sadducees and one's called the Pharisees. And the Sadducees were a little more, we probably call liberal. And they would read the scriptures a little more figuratively. And they were a little more immersed in culture, probably a little too far. On the other side, you had the Pharisees who were too removed from culture. But they were your Bible-thumping conservatives. They knew everything, took somewhat of a literalist approach to scripture. And so they took these two verses in particular and they literally interpret them of putting something on your forehead and something on your arm or right hand. And so they do that today. It looks just like, well, it doesn't look just like this, but I made my own version because, well, I just am not wealthy and can't buy them. But they do it to this day. A friend of mine in in the first service told me he's a prison guard and he sees uh, Jewish people still practicing this um, during their morning prayers. If you ever take a trip to Israel with a group of Jews, which my mom has several times, and I plan to someday, on the back of the plane at the right time, because it's a very long flight, don't go to the back of the plane. You've got a bunch of people praying, and what they've done is they've wrapped something, I'll tell you, around their arm, and they put this, what they call phylactery or teflon, on their head. And in this is something very particular. 
It's a small box. It's made of calf skin, and it has very particular ways to make it, sizes, shapes, a leather strap. And inside this are four pieces of parchment, very particular pieces of parchment, with four scriptures written on it. And it's to remind them and to live out what God has commanded them. And I think that's just amazing to take so seriously something that God tells them to the point where they get to this, which literally interpreted, and they are going to honor what God's Word says. I think sometimes we're so worried or, or stressing about how we can get around God's Word rather than going into like how we can really fulfill it. Four scriptures were in here. One is Deuteronomy chapter 13, as so it read, 1 through 10, rolled up, placed inside here. The other is Deuteronomy 13, 11 through 16. The first one, as I already read, talks about the duty just to remember. And the second part talks about the obligation to put something on your forehead and on your hand. The other two verses that are written, or series of scripture, I should say, are Deuteronomy chapter 6, which 4 through 9, which I'll just recite for you in summary. And that's the verse that says, the first verse I teach my children. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And it goes further and says, These words that I command shall be on your heart. And it goes on to say, You shall teach them, you shall talk of them, you shall bind them, you shall write them on your doors and your homes. That is in there. And the last verse is in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And in Deuteronomy chapter 11, in verses 13 through 21, it speaks of what God says, If you follow my word, this is what happens. If you do not follow my word, this is what happens. And they put that scripture in there. And in particular, it says this, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God, and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give you, and He lists blessings that will happen. But then He says in the same passage, If you serve other gods and you worship them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. Lay up these words of mine in your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall teach them, talking of them, walking in them, writing them, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied. So they put all of these scriptures in here, and every day at morning prayer, they pray. And they have a long, it's a leather strand actually, that wraps all the way around their arm with all the scriptures written on that one piece in Hebrew. And the mark on the forehead is symbolic of the one in whom they serve. And we kind of think of, we always think of marks, we think of the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation, how that's some freaky thing that's going to happen where you can't, you know, have any money unless you have this mark and everyone who gets the marks is, you know, a child of the demons and it's, it's kind of a scary thing that people like to kind of get creative with. I'm not necessarily a literalist with an interpretation regarding that, believing that I'm going to accidentally get a tattoo or accidentally get, you know, a, a, something on my skin that's going to damn me to hell. That's not really my, my belief. I do think that if you get a tattoo that says property of Satan and you emboss it on your head, most likely your heart is not in the right spot and I'm a little concerned for your salvation, but I don't think that any tattoo is going to damn anyone to hell. I hope not because I'm getting one next week, so it should be not on my forehead, but no one's offering me money for that. But the mark on the forehead is a mark of ownership. 
It's a symbol of loyalty. And so, to be convinced in their own hearts and to remind themselves of who they are, they, they put this on their head to say, I am loyal. I confess that my master is Yahweh. And the right hand, or the hand, is the hand by which we take oaths, right? It is symbol of our commitments, the things that I promise to do or promise not to do. So you have your loyalty and the actions related to your loyalty as a symbol of this thing. And my question for myself all week has been, what is what does our headgear look like? What is in our our box, if you will. And the core issue, I believe, is lordship. It's the lordship of God in our lives. Who or what? And these are questions that no one else needs to really ask but yourself. In the privacy of your own home, in the quietness of your own soul, no one knows the answers but you and God. But who or what is the Lord of your life? What's that mean? Let me give you some more. Who or what dictates what you do? How you act? Who or what helps you discern what is the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do? Who or what protects you? Who or what encourages you and brings you comfort? Who do you turn to? What do you turn to when when things go bad and you need hope? Imagine if you constructed a box and, like I have here, which is really easy to make, and I'll show you if you want. And you placed it on your head. I just don't think that many of us would have Scripture in it. I think we'd have a lot of really pithy, wisdom-like statements that have really no biblical root at all. They sound good. They feel good. Oprah talks about them all the time. We throw them in there and you almost think that they're scriptural. But as Paul would say, it's the gospel of demons. It's the gospel of demons. We don't set scripture on our hands and before our eyes because I really don't think we believe it has power. In the same way that I don't believe most of us pray because we really don't think it works. We don't savor and recognize and delight in the power of God's Word. And what is obvious to all of us is that the world is a hard place to live in. That we fail to realize, though, that as 1 John 5.19 says, and I'll just read it, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That this world is a battlefield at war and we're in the middle of it and that we live in a world where we have an enemy we have an enemy that prowls about as scripture says like a roaring lion just looking no looking for someone to eat and when he's not eating somebody he is firing missiles at us to destroy us And I like how John Piper described it. You have an enemy that hates you. He hates you. He hates your children. He hates your marriage. He hates your family. He hates your church. He hates your faith. He hates it all. And we walk around like 
nothing. We go into the world with we go into the world what amounts to being completely naked in the middle of a battlefield hoping to survive. And we have all these injuries, like, why am I getting hit? Is it really that confusing as to why? Or even if we have a shield, like, okay, I got a shield of faith, and like you don't have any weapons to do anything, so you spend your time getting pummeled. I'm strong, but you have no attack. No attack. John 17, Jesus prayed about his disciples, and he prayed for future disciples. And he said, quite frankly, I'm sending you into the world. I'm sending you into the world. And he says, I pray, Father, keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. And your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I mean, do we really realize and recognize the power of God? And this is what I hope you do. Jeremiah says it's so awesome. God speaking through him, 2329, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It's a good book. Hebrews 4.12 The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A double-edged sword that's living, not dead. It's not relevant. Oh, it's more than relevant. Because the story hasn't changed. We're still sinful, still broken, still in need of a Savior. And our hope is in what God has declared, not what the world tries to tell you will save you. The words, I believe, we dismiss because we think it's just 66 books put together in a nice little leather-bound book that are just the words of men when 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture, which I'm not a Greek scholar, but I think all means all. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's all breathed out by God. So to disobey what God says, what Scripture says, is to disobey God Himself. The promises made by men are not just promises of men. They're God speaking it is God's word and we don't follow a dead book we follow as John chapter 1 says the word personified in a man Jesus Christ that is the word that is powerful and so as I'm just going to give you a couple reasons why I think we need to have headgear not brace stuff I don't even think they do that anymore, but headgear. And I'll go so far as to be very practical and say, you all need to memorize Scripture. You all need to read the Bible. I printed off 40 copies. My guess I'll have about 36 left. 40 copies of a reading calendar. So you know what to read. It won't just take you through five genealogies in a row. It'll be a little more saucy than that. But... 
40 copies to encourage people to read Scripture. Not listen to sermons. Not read other books, which are fine things to do, but to read God's words. Why? Number one, it is through God's word that He makes Himself known to you. It is through God's word that He makes Himself known to you. In Exodus 34, Moses is like, show me yourself, God, show me. I don't think he talked like that, but it's always fun. He's, show me yourself, right? He says, okay, I'm going to cut out this cleft in the rock. I'm going to shove you in there because you can't handle it. You'll die. And he walks by him, and we're reading while Moses is describing his experience, right? And so he doesn't go like, well, lightning was flashing. And he doesn't describe, what he describes is what God does. And here's how God says, okay, here you go. I'll reveal myself. And he speaks. He gives him words. He says very clearly in verse 5 of 34, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God says, you want to see me? Here you go. Speaks. And he speaks. And like Brad talked about, we're always looking for a pillar. Come on, show me a pillar. Give me a hand on the wall, something. When he chooses to reveal himself through Scripture, through his words he's already spoken. Why else we need headgear? To protect yourself. Psalm 119, verse 9 and 11 says, How does a young man keep his way pure? How does a young man keep his way pure? By living according to thy word. I have hidden thy word in my heart that I may not sin against thee. That is how. When Jesus is tempted in Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes on full bore, double barrel, Satan attack, super intelligent, the greatest temptation you're going to get directly from Satan, which I doubt many of us ever experience. And he gives him, he says, look, make the rock spread. Come up here in the high thing, throw yourself down. I'll give you all these lands. And Jesus didn't go, no, not gonna. I'm a Christian. Sorry. Doesn't do that. Being a good Jewish boy, he's memorized the book of Deuteronomy. What did he do? He's like firing out verses. He defends temptation. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in the same way we are, yet without sin. And the place where we see Him most visibly defending against temptation is pouting out Scripture. We're like, oh, I deal with lust. I'm going to get rid of my computer. I'm going to turn my TV off. That will protect me. No! It won't. You already got a Rolodex in your brain you can file through anytime you want. What's going to protect you is memorizing Scripture. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, and love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Why do I say that? Because I struggled with lust before. And I tried. Doesn't work. What works? Scripture. Scripture. God's spoken word because it is living and active and powerful. But we don't like that sense of mystery. Give me a a formula. I'll do something. A self-help book. 
Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Not only does it help us defend from sinning, yes, it helps you to not sin. But it also helps you to refute all the lies that are being thrown out. Unlike Adam who was silent, we need to speak. Lies are being poured out all the time, and what happens is we're shaken by them because it sounds kind of biblical, and it's not. It's not. Mormons used to come to my door. They don't come anymore. I think I have a red X on my door, my house or something, on their little map. Okay? I used to be the guy that calls the 1-800 number, like when the thing comes on. Church of Jesus Christ, Lord, oh yeah, come to my house. I need a Bible. They're there. Okay? We talked to them. They'd say, oh, Jesus died for my sins. And I was like, oh, wow, that sounds kind of biblical. Until I started reading the Bible. Then I realized what the Jesus they were talking about was untrue. And so I'd have questions for them. We'd talk and talk and always get to the same point. They'd get very frustrated with me. And then they would go, well, I, they always get to the point where they testify. I testify to you that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. I testify to you the Holy Spirit has told me this. I testify to you the Holy Spirit has told me. I testify to you. I listen and listen. I said, okay. I testify to you that the Holy Spirit has told me Joseph Smith is preaching lies. I testify to you that Jesus Christ is not a creation. He is the only son. And I lay out. I said, so now we got two spirits telling us two different things. I got the Holy Spirit. You say you got the Holy Spirit. What are we going to do? They look at me. Well, Joseph Smith, no, 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 no. We already talked about this. 1 John 4, 1 says, test the spirits. All spirits don't come from God. Test the spirits to see what they're true. Okay, well, I'm not going to test the spirit by another spirit. I'm going to test it by this, what God has already spoken. And so if I can ever get anyone to the point where agree on this is the test, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. There's all kinds of lies. And we kind of like, hmm, that sounds good. That doesn't sound good. That works. That feels right. That jives with my experience. Versus what about your emotion, your intellect, and your experience being tested by Scripture? That is what is true. Everything else might be true. Might be. Even Satan had a little bit of truth in some of his temptations and lies. It helps us to refute the false doctrines. It also helps us to discern what to do. To what to do. To how to be led. Too often I think we, uh, we don't actually make or spend too much time meditating on making decisions. We might make pros and cons list, but we don't spend too much time making uh, or meditating on what decisions to make. In Psalm 119, if you read that whole psalm, it says it constantly says, I am meditating on God's way. I am spending my time delighting in your way. I'm learning your way. I am thinking about what you have done. The reason why is, why do we meditate on what God has done? So that we know what we're supposed to do. God doesn't change. And so we learn without question what is good and what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, by God allowing to lead us. And a lot of times it's by what He's already said. I don't need to pray about lying. Should I lie here? He's already spoken on that. Should I get a little bit drunk here? I've said a lot about that. I really love this person, and I love Jesus, and they don't. Should I? God's spoken on that. What are you praying about? There's nothing to pray about. God's wondering, why don't you just listen to what I've already said? I love what Joshua says in 
chapter 1. Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law, this is what my son is memorizing and convicts me because he's better at it than me. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all That's not even there, see? To according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So obeying God's word makes me prosperous. Yes. Not financially. Although I guess that could happen if he really wills it to. Hasn't willed it for me yet. A couple of things. Not only does it help you discern what the right thing to do, it helps you to lead. And I'm going to challenge guys and give you a quick cup check, and that is this. When things get tough, when things get hard, when you get confused, when your bride is insecure, when your children don't know what to do, when something comes on the TV or through the magazine or whatever that gives a false truth, what do you do? Do you go back to what Dad told you? Or do you go, you know what? Let's see what the Bible says. Honey, I know things are tough, but Scripture says this. Wow, son, that's a hard thing to deal with. Bullies are tough. You know what the Bible says about bullies? Do you lead with Scripture? Or do you lead with really pithy wisdom that was passed down to you that has nothing to do with Scripture? We are to lead in our homes. Psalm 119, again, a great psalm. says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And light to my path. Without the word, you're walking in darkness and you're bound to hit your toe on a bunch of stuff. But the word gives us light. It also gives us comfort. I, uh, because I'm a pastor now, wasn't always, people look for a lot of comfort for some things. And they think for whatever reason, pastors have all the answers. Well, I don't. Give you that little news flash. But I have my own hurts and pains and I've had experiences that I've had to explain, and sometimes they're not explainable. But imagine Scripture being on the forefront of my mind, and all I have to do is go, Psalm 46, Psalm 103. And sometimes that's in my emails and calls. Go read Psalm 46. Because what am I going to say? Fill the air with my words versus God's. But imagine when things get hard, when you feel as sinful as you can, when things are just tough, and you feel like you just can't accomplish anything, imagine being able to recall in your mind Psalm 103. And I can't, so i got to read it. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, not will he, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame, and He remembers that we are dust. Oh, that brings me comfort. It brings me comfort to know when 
I'm experiencing pain, when I'm experiencing the pain of my own sin or the sins against, that have been committed against me, that he knows I am just dust. And like a father, he loves me. And lastly, and I, I've challenged, again, many people by this before, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is one of the verses in here, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, they talk about talking of it when you rise and when you go to bed. And out of the, for women, I believe it's 20,000 words. And for men, it's seven because, well, you can figure that out. Words per day that we use. Out of all those words, let me just flatly ask you, how much scripture is spoken of in your home? I'm not talking about putting like the, you know, well, look, I've got my Thomas Kincaid painting there. Or, you know, your, your stream picture with as the deer panteth for the water. And you're feeling all good because you've got scripture on your wall. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in your regular conversation when you rise and when you go to bed. When you're disciplining your kids or talking to your kids. Or when you're talking to your bride. Or when you're just, you know, speaking out with friends. How much scripture. And no one wants like, you know, some freaky like John 3.16. And like, sir you know, throwing out stuff. I'm saying, how much has it come just a part of your vernacular? Just a part of, of your identity, where you are talking about it all the time, meditating and thinking about it all the time, versus just 40 minutes on a Sunday. That's when my Bible time is. That's when my Bible time is. We are to talk about it when we rise and when we fall. And I think that most of us don't, and I'll conclude with this, because we really don't think that reading Scripture and spending time in Scripture, and spending time in prayer, that's about as fun as root canal work. We don't think that there's joy there. There can't possibly be joy there, because I've tried. I've tried to read. I've tried to memorize. I don't got the brain for it. In fact, the kid that comes in English class is like, I've never been good at English. I'm like, oh, come on. Write something. And once you discipline yourself, you can learn to write. Just as you discipline yourself, joy occurs. Think about it. This way, I believe that desire to know God is birthed by God. So the desire to know God without question comes directly from God. And our ability to understand Scripture comes from God. But getting in the Scripture, we've got an active role in that. And it takes discipline. It's why Paul constantly talks about the idea of an athlete. And imagine being, you know, not really in shape, able to run, you know, much further than five minutes without getting that blood taste in your lungs. You know what I'm talking about, right? You go up the stairs and you're winded, those types of things. And yet going, I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow. Good luck. But if you knew you could run a marathon in six months, if you knew you were part of a race, you could train yourself. And I've had the experience where the first ones stink. I used to be a soccer coach. First couple tryouts were terrible. We weren't done until someone puked. That was the goal. Because they were out of shape and they would puke. Oh, but after a while, less pukers, few less. And after a week, they were lean, mean, running machines, right? They could go without stopping, run miles upon miles during a soccer game. But it took discipline. They didn't like it. I don't like running. But it gets to a point where you feel, oh, I like this. Because you see the fruit. You're running the race, and you're not the kid that's like three laps behind, and everyone else up front enjoying themselves because they're running free, and they're running without pain, and it's enjoyable. 
and you're struggling in the back. It does take discipline. It's the reason why he calls it a soldier. You give a soldier a, a sword and say, go fight, good luck, he'll be dead in seconds. They go through boot camp. Not too many people get out of boot camp and say, that was the best experience of my life. But they go through it because there's fruit that comes from it. The farmer can't say, I desire to be a farmer and then do nothing. Where are the plants? Go. Okay? It doesn't work that way. He said, get out, till the ground, plant the seeds, work the land. And then he sees the fruit of it and the joy occurs. But it takes discipline in the beginning. And I will just tell you that for me personally, because I can't speak for you, but for me it is a joy to know my God. It is a joy to know Him. It is a joy to remind myself and to learn that God loves me and to precept that verses to myself every day because I don't always feel the most lovable kind of person. It is a joy to know what to do when things are hard and decisions are tough. And it's like, I don't know what to do. It's a joy to know that there are answers. It's a joy to know that I don't have to sin. That I can be protected from temptations. It's a joy to know that I can confidently take a stand on this that's not men's opinions, that I can, even my own family who say, you're wrong. Why do you say I'm sinful? Why do you say this? I don't say anything. God's Word says it. Read it for yourself. Christians are hypocrites. I know. This is what a Christian is supposed to be like. Read it yourself. I can step back and have full confidence in God. Take it up with God, not me. I'm just the mailman. It's a joy to know, and especially moms and dads, what to teach my kids. Because parenting is hard. I mean, I assume everyone assumes a lot of stuff before your parent. Oh, this is the way I'm going to do this, and my kids are going to be perfect. And then you find out they're all hellish demons, and you know you do your best. But the fact, well, some of them have angels. Good luck. But my kids, I love them. But by God's grace, they're sinners. So the fact is, I know what to teach them. I can take my sons and say. Let me show you what it means to be a biblical man. Jesus, this is Fisher. Fisher, this is Jesus. I can teach my daughters what it means to be a biblical woman. I can teach a lot of things to my kids that I know they're supposed to know. How do you determine right? How do you determine wrong? And the best thing is Deuteronomy chapter 6. The goal of your life, son, daughter, bride. Friends, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's the goal. And in that is joy. And we don't view it that way. We believe that joy is impossible. But I'll tell you this. Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me. Abide in me because he is the word. Abide in me. And you will have joy. He says at the end. If you abide in me. And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. By this my father is glorified. That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me. So have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments. 
you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The grass is not greener. There is nothing more satisfying and more joyful than God's word. And if you abide in God's word, you will experience the mystery that is a God who can command us to delight in him and command us to have joy in him because it's birthed in us. It's birthed in us by his grace. And so I challenge you, pick up a reading calendar. Open your Bible. Start memorizing scripture. Start taking those cards and paste them on the front of your car that you drive three hours a day and just listen to it. Turn off the radio for a bit and just read the scripture. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your forgiving and gracious spirit. Father, I want so much to know you above all things. And so I pray that in every heart and ear that hears, Father, that you will birth in them and myself an insatiable desire for your word. A hunger, Father, that at times is hard to come by, but I pray that you will give it to us by your spirit, that we might meditate on your words day and night, that we might know what true joy is, that we might know you, Father, which you say is eternal life, that we might be defended from the missiles that Satan sends us and be able to refute the false lies that fill the world, God. That we might be able to be led and discern what is right and wrong and to teach our children and to experience the fullness of joy that comes from knowing you. Father, I pray as we celebrate your Last Supper, the celebration of the raising of your Son, whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us, Father, that his Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, will come alive in us And His words will come alive in us. In Your Son's blood we pray through Your Spirit. Amen.